Our topic tonight, battle for the next generation. There's a spiritual battle going on in this country, and we need to be well aware of it. The other thing is, we need to be trained to be on that battlefield. And I'm going to also present a winning strategy. We already know we win the war in the end. But in the meantime, there's many out there in the battlefield we're losing. And we need to gather them in. Every one of us here has the opportunity to be a witness for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Every one of us is commanded to be an evangelist. And that's what we want to train you for that you're not afraid to go out and talk to somebody who has a PhD in any area of science, and you can break them down and bring them to their knees, even if you have to use a headlock. No, no. <laughs> well, let's get started. What I'm going to do tonight is give you a briefing. In the United States Marine Corps, before we send our troops to the battlefield, we sit down and do a briefing. We refer to it a lot of times as the five-paragraph order. And you can break that down to three major parts. What is our current situation? What is our mission? And how are we going to execute this for nothing less than victory? And I'm going to model this talk after that strategy. So a briefing. We're going to start with our situation. And we need to understand that our situation we cannot do on our own. We must go to the Lord with this. Put on His armor so that we are equipped for the battlefield. So our situation, I'm going to start with the Bible. Three truths we know for sure from God's word. Three things we can stand on to get us to the battlefield. Truth number one, the Bible teaches God is the creator of all things. You know many churches don't believe that. But he is the creator of all things. We see it in Genesis 1.1. We see it in Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created. And by all him he consists keeps things all together. We see it in almost every book of the Bible that God is the creator. This is not a secondary doctrine. This is a primary doctrine that God is the creator because since he's the creator, this is why we call him Lord. What does that mean? It means the teachings of evolutionism are false because God did not use evolution that is illogical and is not biblical. Because the order of evolution is completely the opposite of God's order of creation. You cannot have two opposites both be true at the same time. So evolutionism is false. The Bible refutes it. Truth number two, the Bible teaches that God determines what is right. We read this in Isaiah 45, 19. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I Declare things that are right. So God tells us there are things that are right. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, right there, the Bible clearly teaches there are absolutes, and there are definitely things that are right, and there are things that are wrong. What does that mean? It means all the teachings of moral relativism are false. These are the things we're getting from the Bible. What I'm telling you here are the things our youth are having to go through. They're being bombarded with evolutionism. They're being bombarded with moral relativism. And they don't know what to do other than leave the church. Truth number three. The Bible teaches we should train our children according to God's word. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them, notice this, diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. This is what we need to be doing as parents. Who's the number one teacher in a child's life? The parent. What does this mean? What they're learning in secular schools is false information. We need to make sure we bring our children up according to God's word. To make sure they have a correct biblical worldview. And as parents, don't give that right to anybody else. 
Yes, you might send them to Christian school. You might homeschool them. You might send them somewhere else. But ultimately, we as parents are the authority on our child's education. And we need to make sure we know what's going on in these secular schools so we can make sure they understand the truth, which is God's word. So three truths. Let's talk about more situation. Judges chapter 2, verses 7 and 10. God is not real happy with Israel. Here's what he has to say. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Notice what it says there. All those people who lived with Joshua and saw all these miracles continued to serve the Lord because they had seen the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now get this. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, that means dead, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, one generation of not teaching you lose the children. You lose the next generation. Does that not sound like America today? We're losing our youth today. Now I'm talking about youth that have been in Sunday school for 12 years are completely untrained to defend their faith. Something is tragically wrong with Christian education today. Now, God is really unhappy with Israel in this one. He's not happy with them at all. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Does that not sound like America today with so many of our youth perishing? So many of our Christian youth perishing. No longer having confidence in the Bible and leaving the church. What God was angry with in Israel back then is what America is doing today. So let's get to the heart of the matter. In 1973, abortion was legalized nationwide. On June 26, 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court recognized same-sex marriage nationwide. For many years, students have been taught moral relativism starting in the early grades. If you ever take a look at some of these teachers' books, it'll astound you what they're teaching our children. For decades, evolution has been taught as a fact in our secular schools, universities, and in some of our Christian schools and universities. Let's take a look at the tactics. You must understand the tactics of your opponent so you can better fight the battle. National science organizations. The National Science Education Standards, National Research Council's Board on Life Sciences, National Academy of Sciences, National Association of Biology Teachers, and National Center for Science Education all support and teach evolution from Gates K through 12. Boy, it looks like we're pretty outnumbered. Let me show you what they're doing here. Life Sciences Education, American Society for Cell Biology, created a plan for developing what they call the Thinking Evolutionary Initiative. This is what they're spreading throughout all our public schools and all our universities. Thinking Evolutionary Initiative. What is their initiative? One, develop and implement models of successful professional development for teaching evolution. Is the church doing anything like that? No. Are our Christian universities doing anything like this? No. Folks, we're being out-educated. Develop clear messages about the importance of thinking evolutionary. How many churches develop plans for the importance of thinking that God is the creator of everything in six days? Very few. Interact with communities and engage them as partners in education. Utilize social networking to spread evolution thinking. Find effective ways to train teachers to teach evolutionary thinking. There is a need to create Teacher leaders, in other words, master teachers. Are we doing anything like that in churches? No. Are Christian universities doing anything like this? No. Identify sources of funding to allow K-12 teachers to attend professional society meetings. In other words, what they're doing, folks, they're bringing teachers in, and the teachers don't even have to pay their own way. They have so much money, they pay the teacher's way to come in and get educated on how to better teach evolutionism. Wow. Let me show you something about the National Center for Science Education. Notice the names of these books, not in our classroom. Know what they're talking about there? They will not allow creation in, our class, in their classrooms. 
they have resources to help defend the teaching of evolution against a student that might bring up creation in the classroom. Are we training our students how to defend their faith in God's creation against evolution? No. Let me give you a practical example here. Northern Arizona University. Okay, here's your first question. If you fail it, it's 20 push-ups. What state is Northern Arizona University in? <laughs> I like everybody to pass my test. Everybody, when I do t teach classes, everybody gets everything right. I like that. Okay, freshman honors class. They were required to read a book. The name of the book was this, American Fascist, The Christian Right, and The War on America. This is the book they were required to read. Let me give you some quotes from that book. And also notice who the author was. Chris Hedges, graduate of Harvard Divinity School. That Divinity School has nothing to do with the Bible. Nothing. Quote from the textbook. Followers, meaning evangelical Christians in the movement, are locked within closed systems of information and indoctrination that cater to their hates and prejudices. Gets worse. Now they're going to talk about pastors. Most of America's fundamentalist and evangelical churches are led by pastors who peddle this non-reality belief system, one that embraces magic, the fiction of a Christian nation. This is what those students are learning. And this is not just Northern Arizona University. This is the type of teaching that goes on in many of our universities today. Here's a quote from one of the students that was in that class. I didn't know Christians were so bad. This is what our youth are up against. Now let me give a quote from a mother whose child was in that class. Don't Christians realize what their children will be up against? And if they do, why aren't they preparing their children for these battles? Very good question. Why aren't we? Well, I'll give you part of the reason is our Christian colleges are failing us. They're doing okay academically, but they don't know there's a war going on. And if you don't know there's a war going on, you're doomed to lose. Some questions. Should we be upset with the abortionist? Should we be upset with the gay rights activist? Should we be angry with the evolutionist? Should we be angry with the moral relativist? And should we be angry with the teachers who teach these alleged rights and philosophies? And the answer is no. We should not be angry with them. Why? They are being consistent with their worldview. Ladies and gentlemen, we have had decades to prepare ourselves against each and every one of these philosophies, but we did not do it. So whose fault is it? It's our fault, folks. It's the church's fault. It's our Christian university's fault. And it's our fault as parents. We have nobody to blame but ourselves. We have had decades to prepare ourselves, and we refused to do it. We got too comfortable. There is a battle going on for the very heart and soul of this nation. And unless the Christians rise up and get educated and know where the battlefield is, we are doomed to lose this country. We need people to go to the battlefield. We need to raise up a next generation that can stand firm on their faith. The state of Christian education today, most seminary graduates are unable to defend their faith. All you have to do is go out and get one of these seminary graduates and ask them some questions and they can't defend their faith. Wow, spend all that money to go through a seminary and they can't defend their faith. Churches seldom bring up these topics. Youth leaders are unable to train their students to defend their faith. It's very seldom I find a youth leader anywhere in this country that knows the, the topic of apologetics and can train their youth how to defend their faith. Very few. Why? I'm not trying to badger youth leaders here necessarily. They were not trained in the Christian universities how to do this themselves. Have you ever taken a look at a Christian university and see the courses a youth leader has to take? It has nothing to do with defending the faith. Many of them come out not even knowing or understanding the full gospel. Most Christian leaders are not prepared to carry out the Great Commission against the strongholds of evolution and moral relativism. Let me give you some questions, see how many of these questions you can answer. Now, I'm not going to call on you. 
How can you call God good when he allows bad things to happen? You know, that's the number one reason why people do not accept Jesus Christ. Probably less than 2% of Christians can adequately answer that challenge. But it's the number one reason. Every Christian needs to learn how to answer that question. Since it's the number one reason for not wanting to accept Jesus Christ. How can the first three days of creation be little days as the sun was not there until day four? I teach these, I teach these in our classes how to handle these things. These are the questions our children are coming up against. And if we can't answer them as parents, you're bound to lose your children before they finish school. They're going to walk away from the church. This is the seriousness of what we're doing. What's true for you is not true for me. That's that moral relativism. In the Old Testament, God killed men, women, and children. What kind of a God do you Christians worship? Can you answer those questions? Why are Christians against a woman's right to choose, meaning abortion? If you're against abortion, you have to know how to answer this question. It's critical to answer questions like this. Doesn't carbon-14 prove the earth earth is older than 6,000 years? No, it doesn't. Carbon-14, folks, is our friend. I do a lot of teaching on this. Matter of fact, I run a sixth-grade Bible study for boys now. And they're going to learn how to answer that question. Because I can teach carbon-14 to a sixth grader, and they'll understand it. None of what I'm doing up here is rocket science. The age of the earth does not matter. Why, why not just preach Jesus? Yes, amen, just preach Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. That means we need to start in Genesis 1-1. And how's the last book of the Bible start? The revelation of Jesus Christ, yes. The whole Bible is about him. So if you say just preach Jesus, that says preach the whole Bible, starting with in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Why are Christians so intolerant of other people's beliefs? Easy one. Why are you so intolerant of my alleged intolerance? Give me any real evidence for the existence of God. There's overwhelming evidence for the existence of God out there. We need to know how to answer these challenges. Evolution is a fact, and Christians should learn to accept this and stop trying to indoctrinate children with the fantasy of creationism. And how about this one? How do you fit dinosaurs in the Bible? We should never, ever lose that argument with dinosaurs. That is a win situation for us. We should never lose that one. Because dinosaurs fit into a 6,000-year-old earth easily. These are the things our youth are getting beat up on. We need to know how to answer these as parents. Education and a crossroads. Evolution, the idea of billions of years is confusing our youth. Which one's true, the Bible or evolution? They're, they're living with these inconsistencies. And what happens? They start wandering over to the evolution side, just accept billions of years with not understanding that all these dating methods are based on assumptions which have been proven false, every one of them. And they're never taught. There's many, many scientific evidence that support a young earth. They've been banned from the school systems. Parents are concerned that their children don't believe the Bible anymore after going to school. I've had numerous parents come to me in tears, not to ask me a question, but to tell me they raised their child in the church, sent them off to this university, and now their children won't speak to them anymore. They've left the church. Too many church youth leaders are more concerned with numbers and entertainment than teaching students to defend their faith. Now, I've met some pretty good youth pastors in this country, so I'm not badgering all youth pastors. I've met some good ones. They're in this thing to train the youth. But predominantly, I see way too much entertainment. There's nothing wrong with entertainment, but that is the whole reason there, to build relationships. You're missing what you're supposed to be doing. The mission should always be the Great Commission. That's going to be our mission. This is the rate we're losing our youth today. Because all this is happening, because the church has had all this opportunity and we didn't do it. Today, Almost 70% of our Christian youth are leaving the church before they finish school. This is an extremely high casualty rate. And it's going to go up unless we, starting here, decide to do something. It starts at home here. This is what we're trying to get going. 70%. Knowledge, Hosea 4.6. Many Christian schools would love to have somebody that knows how to teach apologetics. But our Christian universities are not producing that. They're not producing well-trained teachers who can do this. 
Many parents are looking for some way to learn how to defend their faith so they can teach their children. But it's not happening in the universities. So where do they get trained? Here's my philosophy. If the Christian universities aren't going to do their job, then we'll just do it ourselves. How about that? We'll do the job that they're supposed to do. Let's not sit around and complain. Let's just get the job done. That's how we're going to do it. Brian Yarborough, his son was murdered in the Columbine massacre. Look what he has to say. Looking back, I realized that my church upbringing didn't stand a chance against the immersive education that I'd received. What is he saying there? The church failed him. David Noble, president of Summit Ministries, in his book, The Battle for Truth. In fact, secular humanism is the dominant worldview in our secular colleges and universities. It also has made gains in many Christian colleges and universities. Humanists recognize the classroom as a powerful context for indoctrination. Don Bearley, Ph.D. in life sciences, in his book, Surprised by Faith. At that time, 14 years old, and during the subsequent few years, I did not see the church as a source of answers. During this time, I mentally either discarded or challenged much of traditional Christian teaching about the Bible, creation, Jesus Christ, and salvation. I was asking why and could not find answers. This is what our youth are up against in churches. They have questions, and they're not getting answers. Vody Bakum. His book, in the book he was in, Indoctrination. The correlation is clear. If we continue to send our children to Caesar for their education, we need to stop being surprised when they come home as Romans. Puts it pretty clearly, doesn't it? So let's get down to the hard facts. Billions, that's with a B. Billions of dollars are being spent to teach our students evolution, moral relativism, same-sex marriage is normal, and abortion is a woman's right. Billions of dollars are being poured into that to have our children indoctrinated into that worldview, that philosophy there. Billions. We send our most, about 90% of our Christian youth go to public schools. They spend 12 to 14,000 hours there out of their lifetime. Here's our situation we're outnumbered, we are outfinanced, we are surrounded. There's compromise and surrender within the ranks, and we're being out-educated. That's our situation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a time to sit back and say, woe is us. Not a time at all. In the United States Marine Corps, we are trained that when you're surrounded, you have the advantage. Because now you can attack the enemy in any direction. We have a great opportunity God has given us today. We're surrounded, outnumbered, outfinanced. What a great opportunity. That's the way we need to look at this. We have a whole world out there that is surrounding us that needs to be witnessed to. And we have a whole other generation that we need to train up who can be those witnesses and evangelists for us. But the training has to start here. We have to be willing to take the time to educate ourselves so we can build up another generation that will go to the battlefield well prepared. And let me give you a date, date in history. A lot of you will know it. Unfortunately, many of our youth don't know it. It was one of the most important dates in history. It was a date that changed the entire world. June 6, 1944. How many know that date? Yes. Most of our youth don't know it. What a shame. Probably one of the most important dates in American history, and they don't know anything about it. Even in Christian schools, they don't know about it. That was D-Day. The largest single invasion in all known history. The combined forces of Americans, Canadians, and English landed at five different beachheads in Normandy, France. Again, the largest single invasion in all known history. When those soldiers landed on those beaches, they came under intense firepower. Guns, bombs, mortars firing all over. When those doors opened up and those soldiers had to come off those vessels, many of them not, didn't get to take their first step. They were gunned down right there. And when those soldiers got on those beaches, they continued to come under intense firepower, watching people fall down, arms and legs missing. If those soldiers had stayed on those beaches, we probably wouldn't be here today. But those brave soldiers continued to advance and advance and advance against all that firepower all the way to victory.
That should be a lesson for the churches. We have a tremendous opportunity in front of us. And as Christians, we're told to go out there and do this. So this is our mission. It's an easy one. I didn't have to invent anything. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, notice that word, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That is every church's mission right there. That is every Christian's mission right there. To go out there and make disciples and teach them, disciple them. And we need to get churches back in order for this. Every Sunday school class, that is your ultimate mission in that Sunday school class. Jim Wilson, U.S. Naval Academy, Korean War, makes this statement. In the study of warfare, great men have concluded that there are some overriding principles that if followed will always tend toward success in battle. And if neglected or ignored, will tend toward defeat or even destruction. There are tremendous parallels between physical warfare and spiritual warfare. And we have the tools. We have all the positions in place. We just don't have the knowledge or skills. You see, the youth pastor has a tremendously important position there, but it's not being used effectively. We have them in place. We have the Christian schools and the teachers there in place. We just have to make sure we're equipped with the correct knowledge and how to pass it on. So the plan of action. We must understand and teach the full gospel in order to accomplish our mission. What I find out is the full gospel message, the full understanding of the gospel is not being passed on in most churches today. So I'd like to make sure we understand the full gospel before we leave here today. I'm just going to break it down to four components. And each component can be lumped. There can be several scriptures for each. Number one, the gospel does not start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is a fallacy to believe that. The gospel starts in the book of Genesis. We hear about John 3.16. Most of us probably know John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he can send his only begotten son. But how many know John 3.17? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but through him the world might be saved. That is a key to understanding the full gospel, the word saved. John 3.17 says we need to be saved. What that means is something's wrong. Something went wrong. And in order to stand, understand this gospel message, folks, you must go back and understand why we need to be saved or you don't understand the gospel. It goes back to the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created. He is the creator. He owns everything. He can set the rules. Then it goes on to say, when he finished his six days of creation, he pronounced it very good, meaning perfect. His creation was perfect. That's the first part of understanding this gospel. And he did it as the Bible teaches in six literal days. Nowhere, and I've put this challenge out for decades now, no one has shown me anywhere in the Bible you can have millions of years. No one's been able to do that. And maintain the integrity of God's word. See, we're told not to add to his word or subtract from it. With what the Bible is, no one's been able to show me anywhere millions of years. It says six days, and incidentally, God wrote that down too. Ten Commandments, commandment number four, you know what God wrote down on the stone tablets? For in six days, the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. He wrote it down for us to make it very simple. Six days. Then, God gave Adam and Eve one rule, didn't he? Gave him one rule. Said, you can eat of everything, but you cannot eat of the fruit of this tree. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, there will be a consequence, and that consequence will be death. Well, so what did Adam and Eve do? They disobeyed God, didn't they? They ate of, the tree of, ate of the tree, the fruit from there, and God kept his promise. Death came into the creation. And all of creation now comes under the curse, which includes not only people, but all creatures. We now have death in the creation. And now we are separated from a perfect and holy God, and we, at this point in the stage in the gospel, we have absolutely no hope 
Because God commands perfection. We have denied that. We've lost that by our sin. We are now in a position in the gospel of absolutely no hope. We're separated from God forever, it looks like. See, this is the bad news. In order to understand and appreciate the good news, you must understand the bad news. And that's not being taught enough because most churches don't believe it. Now, there's something else here. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a very important verse. God gives us the first promise of victory and a Savior. Right there in Genesis 3.15, he gives us the first promise of victory. And he fulfills that in John 3.16. Are you seeing the relationship between the Old and New Testament now for the gospel? The promise comes in Genesis 3.15. He fulfills it in John 3.16 when he sends his only begotten son to pay the price for our sins. This is getting to understand the gospel now. So now, we have the very core of the gospel, Jesus Christ. John 3.16. And he also says this. There's only one way. Only one way, and that's through my son, Jesus Christ. There's only one name under all heaven that you can be saved. That's what he tells us. Only one way. You know what else he tells us? You can't do it by your works. You can't do it because you're not good enough. And then the last part of the gospel is response. And ladies and gentlemen, again, it's not by our works. It's his grace. And he has called all of us to repentance. If he didn't call us to repentance, we probably wouldn't repent either. See, it's nothing we do. He called us to repentance. He wants all to be saved. He's calling everybody. And he says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him dead, you will be saved. That word confess means you're making a promise there. That Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. And then you'll be saved from eternal damnation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the full understanding of the gospel. You must understand and know and believe the bad news first. But here's the problem. You see, the very foundation for the gospel is the book of Genesis. It is the whole reason Jesus Christ had to come and suffer and die on that cross and be raised again on the third day. And that's why the world is attacking there rather than the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The world knows if we pull that foundation out, everything else crumbles. And this is the part most churches are ignoring. Many churches don't even believe the foundation. That's why we're in such trouble. We're training the next generation not to trust God's word. So here's a question. How do you destroy great nations? Well, you can drop a lot of bombs and missiles on them. But today, there seems to be a whole other tactic, how to destroy great nations. It's called attack from within. You attack the very foundation, the core of the country. You change their history. You change their morality. And you change their theology. And that nation will come crumbling down because now you have control of it. Let me show you some things. They're teaching a different history today. We've got this history that's not being allowed in many of our schools. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unable rights. Our youth don't know that they have certain rights that come from God that no one can take away. See, every one of us sitting here has the right to be a child of God. You have the right to become a citizen of heaven, and no government can take that away from you. Our children don't know that today. They're teaching a completely different history. They're teaching a completely different morality. They're teaching abortion, same-sex marriage. There are no absolutes. No such thing as right and wrong. And this starts in the first grade. They're teaching a whole different theology today, what our country was founded upon. Now they're teaching millions of years, said what the Bible says, plainly six days. Creation is not an important issue, what I hear coming from a lot of Christians. Oh, it's not an important issue. They're believing in a local flood, not a worldwide flood, which helps also destroy the gospel. And there's many different gospels being preached out there. A works-based gospel. 
Mystical experience. Your experiences have more priority than God's word. Prosperity gospel, social gospel, and many other gospels are being preached out there today. But there's only one real gospel. And God told us if we tell any other gospel, we're going to be in trouble. The results. Today, it seems more of our churches and church leaders have more confidence in man's wisdom than they do in the plain reading of God's word. Where is the first distortion of God's word? Genesis. When Satan came out and said, I'm going to paraphrase now. That's not what God really said. Let me tell you what he said. That's a paraphrase. You know what I'm hearing in a lot of our church leaders when it comes to creation? And I get up there and talk about six days. That's not what God meant. I've got the PhD. Let me tell you what he said. He really meant millions of years. Well, show me where that is in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, folks. It says six days, and God defined his days as being literal days, evening and morning. You know, everywhere in the Old Testament, you see evening and morning, it only means a day. You also know everywhere in the Old Testament, you see a number of word day, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Anybody know how many times we have a number with the word day in the Bible? And, and I can see your brain waves coming from me. I, I see those sine waves coming, and you were thinking 410 times, weren't you? Yes, I knew you were my Bible scholar right there. 410 times in the Old Testament, we have a number of the word day, and it always means a day, never anything else. So why would Genesis be any different? We have become weak and very ineffective, because if we don't believe the Bible, how can we tell somebody else to believe it? Oh, the Bible, we'll give you the gospel. Well, what about Genesis? You don't have to believe what that says. What have you just done with your witness? We have become afraid of the world. How in the world can we be afraid when God's with us? As a result, we're teaching the next generation not to trust God's word, and we're becoming more like the world. We're supposed to be out there influencing the world, but it appears the world has influenced us too much. Let me show you a quote. This quote comes from the atheist. Now, I want to show you that they fully understand this battle better than most churches. And here's what he has to say. And the creationists have also shown irrefutably those liberal and neo-orthodox Christians who regard the creation stories as myths or allegories are undermining the rest of Scripture. Isn't that what we've just been saying? Here's the atheists. They know this. And then he goes on to say this. <laughs> For if there is no Adam, there is no fall. If there is no fall, there is no hell. And if there is no hell, there is no need of Jesus, second Adam, an incarnate Savior, crucified and risen. As a result, the whole biblical system of salvation collapses. And then he concludes, evolution thus becomes the most potent weapon for destroying the Christian faith. And yet, many of our church leaders have compromised with evolutionism and brought that into their churches. No wonder we're losing 70% of our youth. We need church leaders, Christian leaders, who have courage, honor, and commitment to God's word. We need to raise them up. How many know this great hymn here? Onward, Christian soldiers. I'm not going to sing it because you would leave. I was told in the fourth grade not to sing, and they were correct. How many of you really believe that and read the words when you sing it? See, we sing a lot of great hymns, but are you really listening to what those words are telling us to do? Or are we just making music? Onward, Christian soldiers. That's what we need. Now you're going to be thinking that tune all night long, aren't you? So the plan of action, it's simple. It's based on 2 Timothy 2.2. This is what our ministry is based on. This verse right here. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is one of the best verses in the Bible on discipleship right there. What is it teaching? Well, Paul is telling Timothy... Now that I have trained you to teach, you go out and train others how to teach also. Discipleship. That's what we need to do. The plan of action. We need to increase our teachers. Make sure our current teachers know how to teach us, but we need teachers everywhere. We need a teacher in every church who can teach biblical creation without compromise more, how to handle moral relativism, how to handle the gay rights issue, how to handle the abortion issue. We need well-trained teachers, and it looks like we're going to have to do it ourselves unless the Christian universities 
wake up and get on the battlefield. We need to train that next generation to stand firm. In other words, this is the ultimate goal right here. Know the gospel, be able to share the gospel, and be able to defend the gospel. Most Christians cannot do this. This is the Great Commission right there. Know the gospel, can you share the gospel, and can you defend it? That's what you want to be able to do. The value of education. Now, we don't know who the author of this is. A lot of times they say it's Abraham Lincoln, but there's no direct link there. The philosophy of the classroom one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. In other words, whoever owns the education system will own the next generation of leaders. It's very simple, folks. Unless the church starts doing their training, unless our Christian universities get on the battlefield and start training, we will not own this next generation. We will lose it. Let me show you some of the things we're doing. Training. Creation apologetics. We need to have some creation apologetics. We need some things called practical apologetics. Our Christian universities don't have anything to do with this. They get into the philosophical part of apologetics. Now, wait a minute, Mike. What is apologetics? Are you telling me it's time to start apologizing for what we believe? No. Apologetics comes from the Greek, apologia. It means we have a defense, a verbal defense for what we believe. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a biblical command for all Christians to be able to know and put into practice. 1 Peter 3.15 says we're to have a ready answer or ready defense always for the hope that's within us. We are told to do this. This is not just for the intellectuals. This is for all Christians. So we need to have some practical apologetics. We need to understand critical thinking skills. Need to understand questions about science foundations, presuppositional apologetics. We're going to go through a little bit of each one of these. Practical apologetics. Need to start with a biblical worldview. Matthew 22, verse 37 is the definition of a biblical worldview. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and all thy mind. That's everything, folks. Then John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We're to be set apart. That's what sanctified means. We are to be set apart by God's word, not change it to be like the world. We're to be set apart. We need to understand, oh, there's one of those college words, hermeneutics. Why didn't they have hermeneutics? Why is it her? Hermeneutics, my mind wanders. Hermeneutics. How do you read the Bible? See, it's wonderful to train somebody how to go through a book of the Bible, but it's much more powerful if you train them how to read it and find things on their own. How to understand the words in the Bible. How to take a word in its context. This is hermeneutics. See, we have whole courses in universities on hermeneutics. But in one hour, I can train you enough so that you can go out and start reading the Bible on your own and understand it. At least most of it. Context. If something is explicitly stated, it takes precedence over something that might be implied. Then there's a whole purpose of communications. Those are three big parts of hermeneutics. How to read the Bible and understand it. The days of creation. What were those days? Well, if you apply this hermeneutics there, folks, you will fully understand that God meant literal days. He did not mean long ages. Nowhere in the Bible you find long ages. The Genesis flood is overwhelmingly talking about a worldwide flood. The geology overwhelmingly shows a worldwide flood. It does not support millions of years of geologic time out there. And anybody know how long it takes to make coal? Oh, you open these textbooks, they'll say millions and millions of years. No, we can make coal in less than a week. Petrified wood, how about a week? These things don't take long periods of time. Large canyons, how many have been to Mount St. Helens? How about large canyons in a day? See, I'm going to use one of the... Can I use a technical term here? Okay, I'm going to give you those technical terms. We have been snookered into believing long ages. I like good technical terms there. Then, how to recognize and refute compromise within the church. Because it's everywhere today. Practical apologetics. Questions like, who did Cain marry? Wasn't his wife, because she wasn't his wife until after they were married. Who did he marry? Got Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Who did he marry? Was there really a worldwide flood? 
How could Adam name all the animals one day? These are questions our children are getting challenged with. How do you fit dinosaurs in the Bible? They're too big. How could all the creatures fit on the ark? You know, all these creatures could easily fit on the ark when you do your study and only fill the ark about halfway. Plenty of room in there for Adam and Eve, their family, and all their luggage. How can the first three days of creation be literal days that the sun was not created till day four? Uh, commercial. Um, Anthony, where are you? Anthony? Oh, there you are. Anthony is in charge of a Christian newspaper. How many get that Christian newspaper? Near Mountain News? He's got many copies out there. You'll pick it up because I got an article in there that explains that question right there. So don't leave without it because next time I see him, I'm going to ask that question. If you can't answer it, you're going to drop and do 20. Okay. Incidentally, the best way to teach is fear and intimidation. How many teachers recognize that? Fear and intimidation. Yes, it works well. What about carbon 14? Then we need critical thinking skills. Okay. The normal thing is focus on the evidence. No, no, no. That's not critical thinking. Let's focus on the words they're using. Analyze the words using and hold them accountable to the words. That's what we need to do. Let me give you three critical thinking questions. I know some of you know these already, and I might just call on you, see if you remember them. Three critical thinking questions, and not one of them has a scientific term. This is what we need to be teaching our youth. How do you know it's true? When somebody makes a claim, just ask the question, how do you know it's true? Has it ever been observed? And are you making any assumptions? That'll stop many people in their tracks right there. Because all of evolutionism is based on assumptions. There's not one piece of observable evidence to support Darwinian evolution. Not one. Then we can get a power question. Power question. Show me any observational evidence for evolution that does not require me to use faith. And you can adapt that to every area of evolutionism out there. Especially the origin of life. You know, our best scientists in the world cannot even create one single biological protein. And we don't have to talk about DNA, RNA, ribosomes, organelles. How many got excited when I said words like that? Ah, oh, good, good. Yes, yes. Yes. See, these are the questions we need to be trained on. And did you know evolutionists can ask us the same questions? So we have to know how to answer them from a biblical point of view. We need to learn about things called fuzzy words. How many learned about fuzzy words in English class? Oh, you missed them. Here they are. We believe, we think, must have, could have, might have, our opinion is, we guess, over millions of years. You know, when you see these fuzzy words in articles, and I find a lot of them in textbooks, what that means is they have no observable evidence for what they're claiming. That's what makes them so fuzzy. Then we have magic words, not abracadabra, but appeared, emerged, arose, gave rise, it was on the way to becoming, burst on the scene, they evolved themselves and was making a transition. What does that mean? They're talking about how something evolved and not talking about how it really could have happened. They're just making a claim, uh, claim with no evidence. Then there's things called red flag words. All, everybody, no real scientists, I believe, I think, truth, fundamentalist, intolerant. Well, the first three words express some form of an absolute. So you have to know how to handle those. Then you have ones that express a personal idea. Then you have the ones that are labeling, name-calling. These are things we can train our students. Did you know everyone, everything I've gone through here today can be taught in junior high? Everything can be taught in junior high. So when they get to high school, they are well prepared. Red flag statements. People should decide for themselves what is right and wrong. Well, you know what I do when somebody asks, gives me that kind of a statement? People should decide for themselves what's right and wrong. Well, I'm glad you said that because I just decided for myself what you just said is wrong. It's not that hard. No one has the whole truth. Then why should I believe what you just said? <laughs> you see, moral relativism is a self-defeating philosophy. But yet they're getting away with it in our schools. That's true for you, but not for me. That's just your opinion. Then we get science foundations. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You go to the foundations, such as where did the matter come from to create this universe? You see, you cannot have a big bang till there's something there that can go bang. So where did the matter come from? And we know from nothing, nothing comes. How did life originate? I love to do that. I've been friend and asked the scientists, and this is the talk I do, the origin of life, because I know they're dead in the water. The origin of life is a showstopper to evolution. Every one of our students needs to know this. 
Where did the dinosaurs come from? I've been to museums all over the world. What do I see? Dinosaurs. Open all these textbooks. I see pictures of dinosaurs. What am I not seeing? All the hundreds and thousands of transitions that are supposed to have led up to the dinosaurs, they're not in any museums. Now, this might surprise you. The observable evidence appears to be they were created after their kind. What are the assumptions in the dating methods? See, we're not taught these assumptions. Every radiometric dating method is based on assumptions, which have been shown to be false. What is the foundation for the phosphorus? See, the phosphorus is not hard to teach. When I do the phosphorus, there's only a couple of things I have to do, and it's a dead issue for them. We show right away the fossil record supports the biblical model of created after the kind. You don't have to go into all these details of each fossil. It's going to the foundation. Then we get presuppositional apologetics. This will get the philosophy. Who made God? Where did he come from? Show me any evidence for the existence of God. How can you call God good when he allows evil to continue? Why are Christians so intolerant? That's true for you, but not for me. This is the presuppositional area. And coming down to the end. Now, I know how pastors do this. How many have pastors when you're coming down to the end? It can go on and on. No, we're, we're going to finish here. I've been in the education field in and out of it for 45 years. Give you some of the background I have. I've taught in public schools, junior high and high school, public schools. I've taught in Christian schools, universities, taught at the graduate level, taught in many churches. I ran U.S. Sprint's worldwide engineer training. I ran Microsoft's worldwide uh, engineer, software engineer training. And I was also an instructor in the United States Marine Corps. That's my favorite one. But you know what I found out? The greatest teaching tactic is still the one used by Jesus Christ, building disciples, spreading it out. All those years, and the answer was right there in the Bible all the time. The greatest teaching tactic is the one used by Jesus. He didn't do it on his own, did he? He built the 12 up, and those 12 went out and did what? Trained others and continue to train others. That's the model, folks. This, I'm going to show you what I call the big five. If we can get our children to know these big five and put them into practice, we will be winners. Number one, we need to make sure they have a biblical worldview. That was Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. You need to read that to them over and over again when they're small children. So build a biblical worldview. Learn to think critically and analyze challenges to themselves, not shrink back and say, I don't know. Learn to be good critical thinkers. Know how to refute evolutionism. Respond to the claims of moral relativists and recognize and respond to biblical compromise. If we can do that with our children, we'll have another generation coming up that is rock solid on God's word. I call it the big five. It starts now.